Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, all the way through verse 25, um, and we'll get to that shortly. But I want to challenge your thinking just a little bit. If you'll notice uh, on the screens there, the title for the message is More Than You Bargain For. If I had the opportunity to meet with you on an individual basis this morning, and I could get you to be totally gut-level honest with me, I wonder how you would answer this question. In all of your experience with church and church people and this thing we call the Christian life, would you say that you got more than you bargained for when you first decided to trust Christ? Now, I know that that's a dangerous start for me on two fronts. First of all, it's possible that we have people here this morning who have never come to the point where they trusted Christ as the Son of God to deliver them from their sin, the curse of sin in their lives, and eternal life may not be yours this morning. And I understand that. I still want to say welcome here, and I'm glad that we have a chance to kind of share thoughts together along those lines this morning. So that's one element of danger. The other element of danger is that it's really hard to get Christian people to be honest about a question like this. Because there is that level of information, and maybe I should say misinformation, that's out there on the airwaves and in the byways of our lives um, that kind of says when you come to know Christ, uh, it ought to be all great experience and no problems and you should never have sickness or any of those kind of things in your life after you trust Christ as your Savior. And so when problems come and the trials of life hit... Some of those people who bought into the lie of all honey and no bees in their Christian life all of a sudden lose heart in their Christian life. And it's not more than they could bargain for. The reality, I think, is that our churches these days are full of people who when they really get right down, if I could get them to be really honest, they would say, well, I'm not so sure that I got more than I bargained for. It's not so much that I don't like what I got. It's just that it's just kind of another way of life, it doesn't really fit the standard where Jesus promised, which is in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you may have life that is abundant, which is a quality, not just a quantity. It kind of takes me to those more than you bargain for kind of moments. You know, we all know those things, uh, you know, somebody goes to a garage sale and buys a piece of junk and they find out that it's actually priceless and, you know, everything's great for them or actually the way we tend to look for it is in the lottery. Now, I don't want to know if you won the lottery or not. I just want to talk to you about tithing if you did, all right? <laughs> no, I don't going to do that to you. I'm taken uh, with how God provides ready-made illustrations for me a lot of times on Saturday nights. Teresa went to be with the grandbaby yesterday and left me home because there was work to, be, to do at the house. So uh, I stayed home and did the work at the house, and she was uh, about 9.30 or so, she came home. And so we were, you know, kind of, I was getting a rundown on what my granddaughter's up to. And um, about five minutes till 10 or maybe 10 till we started looking for the news on television and I flipped it across 2020. I don't know if you saw that last night or not, but they were talking about people who win the lottery and they made this brief uh, pass across a guy whose name was Jack Whitaker. I believe that's right. Yes, Jack Whitaker. And in, on Christmas Day 2002 in West Virginia, he won the Powerball lottery 
that was worth over $300 million. A $1 chance got him $300 million. Actually, he decided for the one-time payoff, so he got a measly $131 million. Excuse me. $131 million for a $1 ticket. That's more than he bargained for. But you can go home today and look up the story of Jack Whitaker from West Virginia, and you'll find that 10 years after that payout, he says this, I wish I'd have never won the money. His life, which was already precariously perched on a cliff, fell off of the cliff and everything in his life changed, changed, went away in one way or another, including the death of his granddaughter. Ten years later, I wish I'd have never won. I'm afraid that there are people who approach Christianity that way because the church of our day sells a cheap substitute to the abundant life that Jesus Christ promised. And so we set people up, if we're not careful, we set people up for less than, or excuse me, for getting less than what they thought they were getting when they said, okay, I'll buy into this Jesus stuff that you're selling to me. So I want you to just kind of stop for a moment. I want you to take stock in your life before we ever get started. I know this is an offensive way for me to start. I'm good with that because Scripture all the time pushes us beyond our comfort zones. One of the reasons that the Church of America is so impotent in American life these days is because we decided we weren't willing to be offensive with some stuff. And so from the outset this morning, I want you to just survey your own little circle. Are the people around you getting more than they bargained for having a friend who is a Christian or less? Luke chapter 1. Now we've already looked in here at the first four verses, which is the introduction. It's that general prologue kind of a thing that most people just read over. Uh, Now we're into the latter half. Well, that's not really true. There's 80 verses here, which means probably next March we'll finish chapter 1. Um... That's really not exactly true. It'll be the end of August. Um, But what we find here, starting in verse 5, is the beginning of the story of Christ. But we don't even get to the birth of Christ until chapter 2. We don't get to the ministry of Christ until chapter 4. So is there anything for us here as we look at the story that's being told by Dr. Luke about Jesus Christ and the impact and what he brings into our lives? And the answer is absolutely there's something for us. So here's what I want you to get today. First of all, I want you to understand that sometimes we reach places in our life that I call a where's God kind of situation. It's those times in our lives when things seem to be going wrong. There seems to be no evidence of God. It seems like God has abandoned us. If he ever was there in the first place, he's not there today. Or so it seems. We find this as the backdrop for what we're about to look at. Let's just look at verse 5 very quickly. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, the reason this is important for us is the historical context that it sets for us. 
roughly 5, maybe 6 B.C., thereabouts, 4, something like that, um, we find this introduction. But the key for us is that we understand what's been going on in Jewish life for this time. You realize by the time we come to Luke chapter 1, there has been roughly 400 years in Jewish history where there's not been a prophet in, among God's people. 400 years. Roughly twice as old as we are as a country where there has been no fresh word from God. Now that in itself is enough to cause me to step back and say, hold on just a second. Let me put it to you this way. If there was no evidence that God was alive in your life for, well, you can't be 400 years. So let's just say for all of your life, no evidence at all that God is alive, would you still trust him today? Would you still serve God if there was absolutely no benefit for you as a Christian person? For these Jewish people, the incident that we saw depicted on screen just a few moments ago, 400 years they've been going through that ritual and no word from God. That's a where's God moment for them as a people. But then we can take it even further because it says here that Herod is the king of Judea. Well, what we know about this is that this is in the time of the Roman government. Rome has conquered what we would call Palestine, modern-day Israel. Rome's conquered them, and Rome, the way they happened to do their conquering, is they would put somebody in charge, and they would pretty much let the people do their own thing as far as their religion and stuff like that, as long as they paid their taxes and didn't cause problems. And when they caused problems, they would send the Roman army in and do a number on those people, the heavy boot of the Roman armies. So now Zechariah, this priest, by the way, he's a Uh, from a really pretty good bloodline, the situation would seem to be good for him because he's a priest, but his wife also comes from the tribe of priests. That's like being doubly blessed. And so you would think everything's great for them until you stop and you step back and you look at it. And then there's Herod to to be concerned with. Herod was a kind of a Jewish guy wannabe. He wasn't really a Jew. He kind of wanted to be a Jew. At least he wanted to be accepted by the Jews, but he was installed as king of Judea by the Roman government. But Herod was incredibly paranoid, killed family members that he thought were trying to get him off of the throne. Responsible for great building projects and that time in history in the Jewish world was significant because of him and what he did, but he was not what we would call friendly to the Jewish people at the religious point of reference for them. A where's God kind of time frame for the Jewish people and for Zechariah. And it's warped up another level for Zechariah when we look at verse 7, and it tells us there that he had no children, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And in first century Jewish life, For somebody who had no children and was advancing in age, there was an economic problem attached to that for them. There was nobody to look after them when they could no longer do the things that they needed to do to survive. Nobody, no family member was there to step in and take care of them. It is a where's God situation for this man and for the people of God. So before we go any further, let me just pause for a moment and ask you a couple of questions. Where's God in your life today? It's possible that some of us are here today. Happens every Sunday in just about every church. Somebody walks into a church 
And the question that is on their minds, however they word the question, the question is, where's God in my life these days? Because the reality is that sometimes we go through seasons of life and it seems like God's absent. Or at the very best, it seems like God has just tipped his hat to us and left us to our own devices. And these where's God seasons of our lives can be brutal on us. They can trigger doubt, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and they can trigger despair. The question then is, how do you respond to those times? When you find yourself in those moments where all of the publicity of the Christian life just doesn't seem to deliver, and you ask yourself, where's God? How do you respond? Well, here's what I want you to get. When you're in a where's God situation, the best thing you can do is position yourself to hear God. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. I think they help us out with this. Zechariah is a great example for us about positioning himself. It says, now while he was serving as priest. I need to give you some background here, by the way. There are so many priests uh, in Jewish life by this time that there was no way that all of them could do everything they were supposed to do at the same time. And so they set up this rotational system. It was ancient by this time. This rotational system, and so different divisions would come in on a certain uh, time frame, and they would do the functions of the temple and the sacrifices and the burning of incense and the offering of prayers and all that kind of stuff. And when it was their time was up, they would rotate out and the next division would rotate in. And then on top of that... When it came to this inner working of the temple, and as we saw on the video, the burning of incense in the holy place, not the most holy, not the holy of holies, but the court around that, the priest would go in twice a day and burn this incense while the children of Israel would gather outside in the courtyard and offer prayers. The one thing I would say about the video that really is a little misleading is it only showed a handful of people out there. It would have been packed with people in the outer courts praying. So that's the background that we find here. And it's the one that we would expect. Let me go ahead and finish reading now. Verse 5, in the days of Herod, oh, excuse me, verse 8. And now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty... According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That's the choosing of lot. A guy could only be chosen one time in his whole life to do that. It's a significant time for Zechariah. Even though the, the general situation was less than ideal for them, it was a high point in his life as a servant of God. So we pick up verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, probably in the evening at this case. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And I'll pick that up in just a few moments. Remember, the whole point of this right now is that we position ourselves to hear God whenever we're in those seasons where we wonder where God is. We would expect that of a priest. He's in the temple. He's functioning as a priest should function. And on top of that, he's got the rare privilege of doing it at the deepest level, or almost the deepest level. 
And so we hear that and we say, well, sure, he's in position. Of course God would appear to him there. But we miss the fact that for 400 years, day in, day out, twice a day, God hadn't done that. Position yourself to hear God. We expect it to happen in the temple. He's the priest. All of the pieces are in place there. But you see, that thinking gets in our way. What do you expect to happen? I started this way in my prayer this morning. What did you expect God to do in your life today when you came to church? Chances are good that at least somebody in this crowd, maybe lots of somebodies in this crowd, didn't expect anything to happen in church today. We waltz in, we bring our baggage from the week with us, or maybe we're smart enough to leave it at the door. And we waltz into church and we sit down. We might visit with a few people. And then we expect the musicians to get us there with God. And heaven forbid, and woe to the musician who doesn't get me there in worship. Let me tell you something. We go the other extreme also, and that is we come to church and we expect just because we're in church that God's going to show up. Now, by the way, I need to correct that heresy that just eats at me all the time, every time I hear it, okay? We say God has to show up because two or three of us are gathered together. And Scripture says where two or three are gathered, so am I in their midst. Let me give you a little correction theologically. We're in the post-Pentecost age, And if you know Jesus Christ, if nobody else shows up, God showed up. Because the Holy Spirit lives within you, according to Scripture, if you're God's child. Okay, so it doesn't have to be two or three other people. But you see, there's part of the fallacy for us. We happen to fall into that mindset that says, well, I'm going to go to church and God's going to show up at church today. Except week in and week out, it seems like for many people, he doesn't. And so they get... Less than they bargained for, especially in where's God kind of situations. Here's what I want you to hear from all of that. Proximity to church has very little to do with positioning to hear God. The reality is that probably your best opportunity to hear from God is not in church, but it's in the quietness of your life when you stop everything else and you go before a holy God with nothing to say other than speak, your servant hears. But we don't like that. It's too hard. It sounds too hippie-ish for us. You know, the go sit on a hillside and contemplate your navel kind of spirituality stuff. And so we default to, it's up to Brian to help us worship. It's up to the preacher. Lord, I hope he's got a better sermon today. I wish he'd be quiet because it's time for lunch. And the last thing on our mind is worship. But we walk out saying, well, I was in church and I didn't worship. That's crazy. That's like saying I'm going to go hang out in a garage and eventually I'll become just like a good car. Proximity has very little to do with positioning. 
So what is it about Zechariah that is the positioning factor here for him? It's actually in the first couple of verses there, so let's go back to it and let me show you what I'm talking about. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah, and he had a wife and the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both, what's the word? Righteous before God. Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Okay, this is time for a full stop. Let's talk about this a second. Luke is not saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth were sinless as Jesus is sinless. What he's saying is they were righteous, their behavior was right. Morally, they were blameless. They kept the commandments of God. They walked with God. They were those who were charged in the service of God, but yet they lived everything that they taught. Can that be said of you? Now, I don't want to get on me. Let's talk about you. How many people... No, I don't want to go there either because then we start looking at other people rather than ourselves. Are you fitting that description? This impacts us about the hearing God thing. And so let me see if I can pull it all together again before I take this next step. We find ourselves in those where's God situations in life where things are not going as well as we'd like for them to. It's not following the way our script would read for us and we feel like we're getting less than we bargained for in all of it even though Jesus promised us more than we bargained for and so something's wrong. And so often we'll show up at church or we'll kind of default back to the stuff we were taught while we were in church. And it still doesn't seem to fit all the time. And so we adopt those nice, trite little sayings, the religious stuff that sounds good, it just doesn't help. And it's really about positioning. And it's about hearing what God has to say. And so in this case, one of the things that we have to do especially in those where's God situations. We have to make sure that we're in position to hear God. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm talking about you hearing from God, not from Joel Osteen, not from Mark Rotrammel, although those two should never be put together for many reasons, I'm sure, or your Sunday school teacher. It's you hearing from God, not from some author, not from some conference speaker, not from some deacon, not from... It's you Hearing from God, but the problem is our positioning is off. And we allow things into our lives that choke off the message. Let me give you three examples very quickly of this, and then I need to get on to my second point. First of all, Teresa and I were out driving Thursday evening. We'd gone in to make a hospital visit Thursday afternoon or evening and uh, went ahead and ate while we were in Beaumont. And on our way back, we decided... We, I do this a lot. I just find a road and say, wonder where that goes? And we just start driving. And I uh, found myself, went through China. And uh, for those of you who are listening on TV, I'm not the, that guy on the airplane going to Moscow this morning. Uh, went through China and then back roads to Sour Lake. I didn't realize you could do that, but I found the road. We did it. And in the middle of that, Teresa got a phone call from Lauren. And... Uh, So they're talking, and all of a sudden, I hear Teresa go, hello, hello, hello. What happened? Dropped the call. 
And so in about three minutes, Lauren calls back and they talk for a little bit. And then the same thing happens again, drops the call again. How often is that true of your relationship with God? Where there's periods where you hear him very well, very cleanly, everything seems to be right. And then all of a sudden it's like everything stops with God. You got to reset. That's one example. The positioning is important for that because when we let sin into our lives, sometimes we let sin into our lives knowing that it affects our relationship with God and it's like the conversation stops because God says, hey, you don't want to hear from me. You want to hold on to your pet sin. It's kind of like my air conditioner in my car. Now, if you haven't figured it out, I've been here two years. I'm a smart guy. Let me tell you what I figured out. You need an air conditioner in Southeast Texas in June. But my air conditioner on my car hasn't quite figured that out because my air conditioner has a mind of its own and it thinks only occasionally does Mark need an air conditioner. I live about maybe four-tenths of a mile stretching it from the church. That's not enough time for my air conditioner to figure out it needs to work. So I get in my car, I turn it on, and I drive to the church, and I'm sweating. I mean, it's ugly sweating kind of stuff. And about the time I pull into the parking lot, air conditioner starts working just in time. So what I've learned is drive a long way so that it works because once it starts, it works fine until it doesn't, and every once in a while it will cut out. It goes from blowing Arctic air where penguins are dancing in the seats to Scirocco's where scorpions come up and attack me. I don't know what it is. Probably a short or something like that. Smart guy would go have it fixed instead of gripe about it. Is that like your prayer life? Where it works and then it doesn't work. Oh, when it works, it's great, this Christian life. When we go through those periods where something, there's a misconnection with God somewhere. Oh, those are less than desirable, those times. Maybe the best example is, you ever have a battery in your car and you let the corrosion build up on the connection point where the terminal is? And it'd be working great and then all of a sudden it doesn't work at all. And it's not going to work until you clean the corrosion off of the terminal post. One of the reasons we have churches full of people who are not really sure about this Christianity thing is because there's so much corrosion built up in their lives and they never stop to deal with the problem and reestablish the connection. Let me tell you something about Zechariah. He was in the right place. It happened to be at church, in the temple. But what really positioned him to hear from God was his life. He was blameless. He kept the statutes of God. Let me just tell you, I'm setting you up for frustration here because you're going to hear this, go, I've got to live right. And I say, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. That's part of it. But that's the cart pushing the horse. You got to get the connection. So you go to God and say, I can't do this. To which God says, exactly, now I got you right where I want you. Let me do it through you. But you see, you got to hear him to get to that.
So if you find yourself kind of just defaulting to those nice little trite religious sayings that nobody believes, really, maybe it's a good time to step back and say, okay, I need to do some house cleaning here so that I can position myself to hear God. That's the first thing I see here. All of that happens. This message is all in spite of all the bad stuff. But it takes me then to the next part I want to get. Here's the second half of the sermon in the next four minutes. Not only when you find yourself in those where's God situations, you need to position yourself to hear God. You also then need to be prepared for him to give you more than you had in mind. Now, I had to really work to get this out the way I wanted to in such a short period of time. Look at verse 13. And Zechariah, wait a minute, that's 18, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Here's the question for you. What is the prayer that has been heard? The angel very specifically says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard and God's going to visit you with a son. So, see, when I first read this, I defaulted to, he must have been praying for a son. Because that sounds like the answer. It seems like A leads to B to me. But there's a problem with that, and the problem comes in verse 18. And actually, there's more than one problem. One of the problems is in verse 18. In verse 18, if you read it, it seems to indicate that, well, not that he had never prayed for a son, but that he was not currently expecting a son, therefore not praying for a son, because he says in response, how's this going to happen? My old lady is old for a lady. What is the prayer? Here's what I want you to hear first, okay? Our tendencies in our own prayer lives, well, I'm careful, this is really going to be offensive, I know. We tend to be very micro-focused in our prayers. We, We pray to hear. Here's the way that usually goes. Usually, I am the focus of those. I pray for me much of the time. Most of the time, just like you pray for you much of the time, most of the time. But let's be nice and let's expand it. It's not just me, it's also we. And so I pray for me and I pray for mine. Okay, my wife, my kids, my granddaughter, my friends, that kind of thing. Uh, so that kind of spreads out. It's not just me, it's also we. But it, then kind of we, the, the edge of that is when we pray for people that are important to us. And so I pray for my church. Maybe not you by name, but you generally speaking. And that largely captures my prayer life. It's micro and it's focused. How do you think this prayer was for Zechariah? What you need to know is that gathering of people praying out in the courtyard, one of the reasons that I said the the film was a little wrong here because it only showed a handful of people, uh, it was a gathering prayer time scheduled two a day for the children of Israel in the temple courts and people flooded that area during those times and the priest who would go in and do the things that Zechariah was doing was going in with the macro prayer 
That's the big one. Not the focus in, but the focus big. And it's the prayer for the Jewish people who are under Roman oppression, who hadn't heard from God for 400 years, who are looking for a Messiah, who are hearing the words of the prophet Isaiah and all those other ones, and they were saying, God, visit us as your people. And it's this huge, expansive prayer beyond himself. Let's stop there for a second. What about you? What do you pray for? Even in the macro part, let me just, I had several conversations lately with people who were praying for America. Let me just encourage you, if you haven't been praying for America, you should start. You know, the old country western song said that this is just, you know, I don't remember exactly how it said because I wasn't a country western fan. My dad told me all about it, but uh, uh, something about this being a nut house for another planet, that's us. How do you pray for America? Here's a good one. Let's go ahead and get consistent with the Bible. And let's go ahead and call it what it is because America is as... Well, I don't know how I want to say that that way. Uh, let's just say America's not really all that interested in what God has to say. So let me give you a good prayer for America on the macro sense. God, destroy us as a nation rather than let us live this way. You willing to pray that? If you're not, it might be that your concern is more for we and us than for the reputation of a holy God who we say, bless our nation. And God says, are you kidding me? You willing to pray that God would destroy us as a country rather than let us continue to cause problems for his reputation? That's exactly the prayer my mom prayed for me when I was in the middle of all my rebellion and drug stuff and all of that. She said, I pray that God would kill you rather than let you live that way. Parents, you ready to pray for your children that way? We like the micro prayers, but when it comes to who God is and what he's doing, that's the macro part of it. God is working a plan. You're a piece of it. And how you live your life, even and especially in those where's God times, when we are not really in position to hear from him like we really ought to be, in all of those times God is still at work in us and there are going to come people after us who are going to look backwards at us and say, what did you do? Where was God in that? This is critical stuff we're talking about here. What if Zechariah had gone in there that day and that day decided, I'm not going to follow what God wants me to do. And so God never spoke to him. I believe God would have found another way to make his plan happen. Because the plan is always bigger than the person. But we don't pray that way. The old preacher used to say, God, I'm hurting down here. You're about to lose a good preacher. You need to do something. That's micro. That's me focus. Zechariah goes in. And he prays on the macro level. God, for us as your people, for your plan of salvation, send the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that he prays on the macro level and God answers it on the micro? I'm going to give you a son. <laughs> but then he takes, as God always does, he takes the micro and he explodes it to the macro. And this son of yours 
will be the one. And you go read verses 15, 17, thereabouts. Look at all the promises attached to this guy named John, this boy who will be born. And God says, I'm going to take the little and I'm going to bless the many. Now, who gets glory out of that? Zechariah? Elizabeth? John? The answer always is when God speaks and God moves, it is to his glory that it happens. So how are you praying? Are you praying for stuff that if God answered in the affirmative would steal away his glory, would do away with his plan? Or do you see the big picture in your prayers for yourself and for your family, for your church, for your country, for humanity? This is a very uncomfortable reading, and we haven't even gotten to the life of Jesus yet, the teachings of Jesus. But it just reminds me going into this that God is always at work Generation to generation to generation. We're a bridge. What will we do with the trust that has been given to us as his people? Somebody's salvation out there, outside of the walls of the church, might just depend on your prayers. Let's pray. And so, Father, we... Got a lot of stuff in this. So first I just pray for those of us who are here and maybe it's been a while since we've heard from you. Maybe we came in here and the last thing we expected was to hear your voice scream through the ages and scream through the garbage and scream through the distractions of our lives and hear you say, I have a specific plan for you if that's the case we're not expecting that and yet that's what we got today we pray for those individuals that you'd give them the grace and the courage that they need to drop the security of what they've always known and step in to the abundant life that only you can bring and live in accordance with what you have to say what you expect help us all to take this opportunity to take our lives and get the garbage dealt with. I'm grateful that you've given us a single verse that helps us to tie in what's encountered in all of that. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us and move all unrighteousness away from us and we'll be clean because of you. We pray that prayer ourselves, but we also ask that you would bring it home in the lives of your people today. Father, help us to get a fresh handle on the calling that you've given each of us and help us to respond appropriately in Jesus' name.